It's February the 12th, 2020. I'm Mike Benedetti. This is Brendan Mellican. As far as we know. And bursting from the hidden depths of Wormtown like the mighty Shai Halud. This is 508, a show about Worcester. Hi, Brendan. How are you doing? I'm fantastic, Mike. How are you? I'm doing good. I know it's been one of your top three dreams for the city of Worcester for as long as we've known each other, but how do you feel uh, that we finally are going to have that alien-themed uh, cafe and lounge uh, right down the street from your house? That's exactly the look I was hoping it would get from you. Wait, here's here's the look. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are you talking yeah, the, about? So the new owner of uh, the, uh, and it's only, I only saw it mentioned a couple of places, but Worcester Magazine wrote it up. The, the new owner of Bull Mansion. Uh, yes. down the street yes. uh, has this glorious plan to turn like the top floor of the place into like, I don't know, say it, like, picture the movie aliens and like, you know, that, that awesome, what's the name that I'm forgetting the artwork. Um, come on. From Giger. Giger. So HR Giger. Yeah. So basically like, it's going to be, no, that. Wait, here's You're the new be- look. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure that's illegal. And this guy popped up. Uh, <laughs> This guy, uh, he, he, he ran a pop-up uh, or te- like test drove it, uh, the, the idea to pop-up out in L.A. Because, yeah. of course, anything that works in L.A. is going to be an immediate hit in the city of Worcester. That's, course, we know sure. that. Why wouldn't it be? Yeah, right. We know that for a fact. But, yeah, this is going to be right down the street from you. And uh, I can't wait for the opening because I'm probably going to be parking at your place to, uh, to check that out and then never go back because that's terrifying. Wow. Well, you know, uh, yeah, I really don't know what to say about that. I was not prepared <laughs> to discuss that today. Oh, we can move um, on to other things then. Yeah, man. Like I tell you, this is a, this is a, uh, uh, I mean, this is a architecturally diverse and generally architecturally ugly city. Um, but yeah. Are you taking little, another swipe at our brutalist uh, police department? Uh, a little more HR gear in the city though. I, would it be, it wouldn't be, it would not be worse. Yeah. My, no. my, my, probably not going to be better. It's breaking. Would even. not be worse. Would <laughs> not be worse. Brendan Milligan, as far as the week's top stories go, or the past couple of weeks, because last week we didn't run through the news, um, basically there's been a, bunch, been a bunch of drug arrests and some assaults, and we've seen or soon will see the retirements of the city solicitor, city assessor, city clerk, and the chief financial officer. Yet somehow City Hall is metastasizing, and there will be a new mini City Hall in Maine South very soon. It will be open noon to 7 p.m. weekdays. There will be a City Hall staffer to help you help you with your city hall needs and there will also be a census taker to make sure you are counted do you have any thoughts about this mini city hall i think it's interesting i mean i i don't i know part of me like uh, gets conspiratorial right out of the gate says, i sure. think just trying to figure out a, the best way to keep people from main south from going down to downtown now that we've got all these nice fancy apartments down there and the or, Midtown mall is a bit or be they, i mean they're gonna have like a uh, you know an office with a census taker and a city person like are they trying to really maximize like go from like whatever 90 98 percent voter registration in main south to 99 percent yeah. registration in main south well the other thing that i think is interesting too though is like, is the city prepared? Um, so let's say we find out quickly, which I would kind of have to assume it's probably people that live adjacent to city hall that, that are the ones that are more likely to just walk down there sure. to, for, for services. Like 99% of my services, like it's going to, by the time I find like parking and like get in and do my thing, it'd be easier just to hop online and like get something done. But if I was a neighbor, it'd be like, okay, like it'll just be easier to walk next door. I'm already yeah. here. Yeah. Like if they move, if they open up that that spot are they quickly going to find that like nobody's going to city hall for dog licenses or to pay their taxes or their you know their their 
parking fees or whatnot, their parking tickets, and then maybe although there's only going to be one employee, so so I mean the other way around, like so for the, oh. the the main city hall, does like do we end up where nobody is at actually at city hall except for a city hall employees because the only people who were going there for services are now going further down into Maine South, which might be more convenient. And we just end up where we don't even need City Hall anymore. And maybe it, it's, <laughs> like I mean, it just ends up being like the, uh, I don't know, we'll turn that into a, a gear, uh, sort of just bringing like alien themed City Hall. And I don't know. Well, you know, I, one thing I can tell you from talking to um, city employees on the record is that, uh, you know, the idea is that eventually you would have a few of these. Like if, if this turned out to be a good idea and, you know, again, <laughs> doing it during a census year, maybe you're just like, all right, like there's so many benefits to doing it this year. If there's ever any year we're going to do this dumb pilot thing, it might as well be this year. Sure. Worst case, we get some more census numbers out of it. Um, but the idea is that is that this, of all the potential satellite spots, this would be the closest to City Hall. Mm-hmm. This would be the one that if you're in line at City Hall on five o'clock to get your dog license and they're like, hey, this is the last customer we're handling. Sorry, the rest of the people in line. You can just be like, hey guys, go, whatever, yeah. half a mile down Main Street, there's parking, you can get this taken care of. Sorry, we're making you run down there. Yeah. Um, they, but that if it's if it's successful, that they'll do other ones, obviously. Yeah. Like if, and, you know, this is a weird thing because I've, I've, I've heard a lot of people complain about a lot of things in this city over the 20 years I've lived here. Mm-hmm. Never heard a single person complain about uh, access to uh, getting uh, business done at City Hall. Right, right. Yeah, no, I just, I, I, I think this is something we've talked about in the past where it's never like a complaint about getting stuff done there. Cause it's actually a very helpful collection of people and like all the services are right there in this one building. But it's also this thing too, like we must be close to being at a point where the majority of people in the city are, are handling most of those services, payments, whatever online. Cause like we just did a really yeah. good job updating the city's website. Again, we I'm did, just yeah. from a convenience perspective, it would seem like the handful of people for whom be, the internet would not be the easiest way to interact with city hall would be the neighbors of city hall. So it's like the satellite office seems like at the, the perfect location for just that to make things more convenient for the people walking from the nearest dense neighborhood. That's right. That's right. But also it, I can't see how it wouldn't just put actual city hall out of business. That's like, why well, would you have any reason to be there? I mean, uh, this is again based on me knowing nothing. I mean, our population, this population of the city is, is on the upswing yeah. and it will at some point level off, but mm-hmm. it, you know, you can imagine that the number of people needing to do things at city hall is maybe slightly, slightly going down year by year. I don't know that we're creating enough new um, hurdles for people to jump through bureaucratic hurdles that more people <laughs> yeah. are having to use city hall every year. So, but if, if your population is going up, then you know, while your population is going up, maybe that's putting going to put a little bit of stress on the current city yeah. hall infrastructure that's saying, all right, we'll have somebody else and we'll have them do it. We'll have them open until seven o'clock because again, like being open bankers hours. For We've almost worn those marble staircases down to the bone. So yeah, we got to get some people uh, using the sidewalk. I hope they never replace those staircases, man. That's so attractive. You know, uh, WBR had a nice piece on homelessness in Worcester and nonprofits creating more housing to deal with some of the problem. Did you see this? Uh, I don't think I did. Did you see this? This is really cool. Um, yeah, uh, one par- and um, yeah, one part of the plan that they were talking about in here that caught some people's eye is a plan that comes out of the Housing First Coordinating Council's report to the city manager from December. This is a mm-hmm. you know multi-person group. Uh, from a bunch of social service agencies supposed to be meeting periodically to figure out what are we going to do about uh, homelessness and especially prioritizing housing 
as a solution to chronic homelessness. Um, this is like the first bullet item from this report to the city manager. And the plan is to build 103 units of rent assisted housing for the chronically homeless. Mm -hmm. uh, according to the timetable they outlined, half of these should have already been completed. And the other 50 odd units will be built by the end of this year. Okay. And it outlines 88 of the 103 units as follows. The other, the other units seem a little more on the speculative side. Uh, a 25-unit modular SRO from the Worcester Housing Authority, an 18-unit modular SRO from SMOC, a 20-unit tiny house village from the East Side CDC and partners, and a 25-unit tiny house village from WCHR and Community Health Link. How did we miss that they were building two tiny house villages in the city of Worcester? That's the thing. Well, so the the one thing I can sp will speak of is what is up with these modular SROs? Somebody, yeah. somebody I heard somebody describe these to me uh, as uh, cubicle cubicle housing, mm -hmm. not not derogatorily. Um, and have you seen? Do you know what these modular SROs? Do you know what this looks like? I can. Tell I do you not. No. Like. I mean, so, the only thing I can imagine that would probably come close would be uh, like housing for military in like active war zones, right, where you just pop up housing, but it's. It's, this it's, is pretty close to pop-up housing. This is basically like, and again, it's much nicer than this. I would describe it as like sort of like stacked trailers or stacked yeah. shipping containers. Mm -hmm. The idea being that you're that they're constructing the housing at a factory offsite. Mm -hmm. I don't even know where they do it. I know in the Midwest, I know that uh, uh, near South Bend, Indiana, there's a gigantic amount of constructed housing and trailer building. So they bring in, you know, these these um, these you know shipping containers shaped, but a lot longer rectangular blocks uh and you know there might be three how three units in a block mm -hmm. or five units in a block and then they just kind of stack them up and then they run a few across so somebody local has put down the foundation put in the sure. plumbing and the electrical connections you drop all these things on it and then somebody local comes in does all the hookups puts on a roof puts on walls and what it looks like is uh, a housing thing yeah. like it doesn't look anything different than any other you know, uh, uh, affordable housing thing that the city's put, uh, we've seen it come up in the city in the okay. last 20 years. It just looks like whatever. It doesn't or, look know. like some cool housing project from the Netherlands painted no, in funky Ikea look, colors. It doesn't look like any kind of experiment. It does not yeah. look like a stack of shipping containers. Um, I mean, like, you know, honestly, the weirdest it might look is it might look like some of the housing we've seen downtown, this sort of just, which is just like regular, very rectangular, very blocky, very like stacked up blocks yeah. looking. That would be like the most extreme, but like ide hmm. you know, ideally they're putting like, you know, nice yellow shingles on the side or nice yellow siding on the side and they're putting on a regular pitched roof and there it is. And yeah. each unit, so like in an SRO, like my experience of SROs, at least in this city, is that you're basically getting a room. And the bathroom is communal mm -hmm. and the kitchen is communal. And uh, that's how that is. So this is a little bit nicer than that in that it's kind of like staying at a hotel if the hotel has like a kitchenette. A kitchenette meaning just that sort of like one wall of the mm -hmm. um, of the of your little hotel room has like a little has an oven and a little range. And sure. A, you know, there's a little micro inefficiency. Oh, there's a little inefficiency, a little fridge next to the bed. And you do have like a bathroom in its own separate yep. thing with a shower and the, the bathtub shower, that whole thing. But it's basically like living in a, like a hotel room. Like I, I wouldn't say it's, yeah, hotel. Like a, I, I think you would call it a nice hotel room because you're like, hey, my hotel room has a range. This yeah. is great. Um, that's what it would be like. Hmm. So, uh, and then there would be some kind of common space in the ground floor and there would be a laundry room, obviously. And one of these, you know, there would be some kind of manager for the 
the facility who'd be living in one of these spots and potentially the common space or some kind of other space on the ground floor would be used for like uh, supportive services. And, mm-hmm. th- you know, this would be in situations where you decide, okay, we're going to have a bunch of people live in this house, but we're also going to keep an eye on them from a social service perspective. Sure. Uh, where, but you know, you, you could just as easily say like, Hey, you guys are all fine and you, this is going to be an affordable housing solution for you. But, but these no, sound awesome. Yeah. Well, I tell you, this is the thing is that these probably already exist in the city of Worcester. You, they're probably next door to you. Thanks next w- door to me. W- w- we you would are. never know. Now, what about the tiny house side of things? Cause I, I mean, no idea. I didn't even think you crazy. could license these from a zoning perspective in Massachusetts. Right. This is the thing. I mean, this is the thing. America is guess what a tiny house is. It's called a trailer. We've had it for a long time. Like a tiny house is just like a really nice cute cool but that's trailer. the big Full argument in the tiny house community is that they're only trailers because right. it's impossible that like you have to go the dot route and, and treat it as a trailer because there's no zoning for anything right. that, that small that in most cities yeah, that the law just forces you to take right. a certain a certain approach to solving the problem which is not always the ideal but does it. the city of worcester realize that while this is awesome right that we're creating new housing units to deal uh, along the housing first model probably 70 percent of Worcester young people if you told them that this was a potential they would already be signing away like the next 10 years of their their, their earnings to move there like if I don't know, if tiny houses and that those modular sort of efficiencies were available 20 years ago right now i would probably be single and i don't know i'd be more like ted kaczynski the mm-hmm. unabomber right yes. and i would be like a recluse living by myself but yeah i probably wouldn't have gone the traditional housing no offense to my wife is probably listening to this on some level but it's like <laughs> my path could have been different if there was a completely different mode of, of living and i didn't have to like live with roommates and friends throughout the years yeah. and then like finally I'm free. I can buy a house that's going to burden me with a mortgage for the next 30 years. Like that sounds awesome. And I don't, it also sounds like it lines up perfectly with, with what I keep hearing from younger folks is that, Hey man, this city's unaffordable. I can move to Leicester and nobody really wants to move to Leicester, but they can't afford to be here. It seems like the city figured out a giant solution to that without telling anybody. You mean in, in, in the tiny houses with the, and both. the efficiencies? Yeah, it would seem yeah. like both. I mean, if, if there are still vacant lots throughout the city that are available for purchase, you would think every developer in the city would be hopping on right. this idea. Exactly. This is the thing. This is where I don't understand this. And I mean, I mean, I know some of the people on this commission, so I should just ask them what the deal is. We lost every viewer while we were ranting um, about I mean, tiny houses, but I'm serious. This, right. I it's think like, like this is the solution. Trailer, where are these trailer parks that this city, which is so on, on paper hostile to the existence of trailer parks, yeah. is somehow going to allow there to be two trailer parks, a 20 unit and a 25 unit trailer park. Exactly. That like, if this is now somehow possible, every, every law in the city is going to get no joke. Into just last week on the Worcester, uh, mass subreddit on Reddit, there was somebody who was asking like, Hey, I'm moving to Worcester would love to bring my tiny house. Is there any way I can do this legally or moving back to Massachusetts to Worcester? Like, is there any way I can do this legally without just like parking it on like a friend's backyard and plugging things into an outlet or something like that. And everybody universe was like, of course not. That's silly. Like there's no way something like that could ever be zoned in Worcester. Right. Unless you're the city of Worcester and you've got 50 of them already kicking around in small villages. Uh, anyway, boy, it's, I tell you though, it's exciting. Um, you know, that is really cool. I'll have to look up that article, but I, we get to dig deeper into the, the zoning process for this. You know, Brendan, I, uh, you know that I've been generally pretty supportive of this whole uh, uh, trend in development in Worcester uh, in large part because I feel like the only way that we're that we would ever keep the city from uh, doing anything other than turning into a giant pile of rubble and cockroaches is by like some kind of private developers getting excited to pour a lot of money into upgrading sure. our housing stock. Otherwise, everything's going to fall down. And our solution to Worcester, you know, the reason Worcester has been cheap is because everything's falling down. 
but that just is not sustainable forever. Everything can't be, uh, you're, you know, everything can't be a collapsing slum forever. Within a decade, it will be a pile. It yes. will collapse. And even the cockroaches will move to Leicester. But, and so, you know, along with this has come a lot of like, whatever, restaurants opening up or businesses opening up or whatever they are, catering to, you know, this, this crew of half retirees from Leicester and mm-hmm. half, you know, uh, young people who work in Boston using this as a bedroom community. And I have been generally cheered by this because, um, yeah, just because it seems like another sign that this private development thing is working. Mm-hmm. But none of these are anything that I'm actually using. Like I yeah. have no interest in any of these bars, any of these restaurants. Sure. Like, I'm very interested to meet the people who are moving downtown and spend time with them. But these particular facilities, I don't care about. But, uh, man, this tiny house thing, this is the first thing where I'm like, wow, this has nothing to do with this, uh, this private development, but this seems like a wild thing. Yeah. I'm glad the city's doing it. A tiny house village in the city of Worcester. That's tiny house village thing. in the city of Worcester. Just a moment ago, I was mocking the idea that something that worked in LA, uh, obviously is going to work well in Worcester, but like, this is something that's like completely West coast that they have these in Vancouver. They have like 1600 units of like cheap housing in Vancouver yeah. that they've done via, via a combination of tiny houses units and uh, especially modular SROs in yeah. Vancouver. They, well, the, the tiny house thing, the only places I've really seen communities pop up that have uh, worked well have been in Vancouver and then in uh, the Bay area areas that have like large numbers of tech professionals. And even though that they're like making like six figure salaries are basically still living in poverty because of housing costs. And you've got like these rental model, long-term rental models of what are essentially zoned as trailer parks, uh, but are full of tiny houses. Uh, and you can kind of like either bring in or and rent a lot or rent an existing tiny house that has like a cool theme to it. So you can like live in, I don't know, like Bilbo Baggins house or something like that. And it's, but they're, they're kind of high end living spaces. It, again, it just seems like that's a no brainer in terms of uh, figuring out not just uh, how to make the housing first model work in Worcester, but also come up with a novel solution to increasing housing costs by looking at something that in, in many cases, young people are already kind of excited about like, Hey, there's a housing model that seems kind of cool and, and interesting. And why can't we do that here? You know, Brendan, something that we're doing in Worcester on this season of the show is it seems like we're kind of slowly ratcheting up or breaking bad style tension of like, will the protagonist, you know, be able to like keep one step ahead mm-hmm. where you just feel like, like the protagonist is like running on fumes, but they're like, Oh, if I can cross that finish line, I'll be fine. But until then it's just like getting worse and worse and worse. And they're just keeping one step ahead and one step ahead. We're doing this very much with this, with this, uh, so-called polar park development downtown. You know, we have a nice, uh, we, a couple of weeks ago, we heard that there was going to be whatever $30 million in cost overruns. Mm-hmm. Worcester business journal has a nice article odds increase against polar park breaking even comma economists say, <laughs> I would say, Anybody who's like, it's going to cost $30 million and now it's more likely to work because of that, like $30 million, not buying anything new, just right. fixing it up to the previous plan. Everybody, even a non-economist is going to say, yeah, of course it's a worse deal if it costs $30 million more. It's not because you installed $30 million yeah. worth of wind turbines that are going to generate it's, revenue. Yeah, exactly. But, but, but this is a, this is an interesting article. You know, this week the, the city council okayed a tax break for table talk to move out of that area to a different area and mm-hmm. theoretically add 50 jobs and theoretically start paying new, new hires, uh, $15, uh, minimum wage. Um, but uh, this is just another, like another cost of this. And it, it made yeah. me think like, you know, I, and again, like I feel like I was interested in this, this baseball stadium thing because I felt like, all right, it's, it's something we need to clean up this gigantic toxic right. vacant lot. So if it costs a lot of money, that's fine. It's going to cost a lot of money. 
And if we can somehow break even on it, that would be a great, right. and it would be a miracle. But that the city is also constantly frittering away money on stupid stuff. So if we do this, then everybody will hold the city's feet to the fire for a generation against any other new stupid spending. But I don't see this actually happening. And it makes me realize <laughs> that it's probably not going to happen. And that w- what would have been an interesting response, which is now, this would have been a year ago, would, would have been an interesting response, would have been to stand up in front of the council and say to the council, like, all right, you guys should definitely support this. But here's what you should also do. That if you actually think you've done your due diligence mm-hmm. and you actually understand this deal where you are gambling $100 million of the city's money, yeah. $100 million of especially the next generation's money, mm-hmm. um, then you should then you should make a pledge and you should say, okay, cost overruns are inevitable. Yep. But if this thing hits, uh, you know, like 40% cost overruns, I will resign. Mm-hmm. Like you should just put your money, not put your, put your whatever, put your political career where your mouth is and say, all right, I believe, you know, and if the answer is, well, actually this 40% cost overrun, overruns are likely, then you got it. Then you should actually be asking the manager, write me a paper and tell me what kind of fiasco this is going to look like. With 40% <laughs> yeah. cost overruns. I mean, $30 million on a, on a whatever hundred million dollar deal. It's like, 30, I'm terrible at math, but that's a, <laughs> yeah. so anyway, but the time to do that was, it was a year ago. Alas. Yeah, no, dude, it, it is a bummer. And it's, uh, it's one of those things that it's more than a bummer, right? I mean, cause it, yeah, it's, you're, it's 30% of the, the project cost. It's, this is similar to you, right? Like I couldn't care less about baseball. Well, I don't know if you, I, you could be very passionate about baseball. I don't know. Personally, I could, I, care, I could care less about baseball, but I could care less about baseball. As I've said before in the show, it's a dying sport, literally designed for an AM radio audience. It's just, there's nothing in it for me. That said, I grew up in a city and around a city that uh, we had what are essentially giant super fun sites as the dominant features in our downtown area. Right. So like, I, I actually love the idea that there's development down there. Uh, in, in regards to the the park, like I never really get excited about the idea of a baseball team, uh, but like the idea of it being like a venue for like live music, outdoor like live music or whatnot, that seemed really attractive to me. But yeah, there's a, there's a point where it just stops making sense. And unfortunately, we're, we're past the point where you can just reel it back in. And the council sort of feels like it's like if you told them it's going to cost a billion dollars more, they would kind of shrug and be like, all right, what are we else are we going to say? And I, I this is where I often wonder, you know, like there's there's part of me that says you have to be willing to excuse long term development mistakes. Right. Like uh, I, I think I shared this with you and or we talked about it on the show a while back. I'd found a, a, a research paper uh, written by I think it was a doctoral candidate. Uh, one of the, It might have been Harvard. Uh, but it was someone who was studying real estate at the time, and they, they were using downtown Worcester as the the, the kind of anchor of their thesis, um, specifically the mall that no longer exists. Uh, that like there might act, we might actually yes. be in a generation where that doesn't know that there was a mall downtown now. Tearing, but, tearing that mall down is is has considered to have been a great accomplishment, actually. But right? building the mall was also considered a great accomplishment at the time, right? Like when we had the ribbon cut or the groundbreaking for that mall. Uh, you had senators flying in from other states to like talk about what an amazing feat, and not just because there, there were people who were really big in celebrating massive real estate uh, construction. The idea at the time was the ripples that were starting to be seen in uh, in retail, because we always talk about like 50, the 50s as being like the high watermark for retail, but it still was was changing and beginning to change. The, the cracks that were starting to show kind of led people to believe that indoor safe spaces were going to be the place that people went to shop. The idea of putting them right in the middle of your downtown seemed like a wildly fantastic idea at the time. 
I mean, everything that we know, know today was flawed with that, that line of thinking at the time was being celebrated by uh, urban developers, uh, by politicians, uh, certainly by the financiers behind it. It's only when you can look back that you can say like, wow, that was such a wildly stupid idea. Like it's impossible to even conceive how anyone could be so stupid to think that that would work. But like we have the luxury of doing that in the rearview mirror. Yes. And I, I feel like that's the challenge with bigger projects like this too. It's always wicked easy in real time to say, this is never going to work. Sometimes it does. Like sometimes things do work and we can all be surprised by it. I'll be the first to say, if we start bringing in millions of rabid baseball fans to Worcester every year, like, Hey, great work guys. That worked. Yeah. Apparently baseball is yeah. far less boring than I thought it was. But the money part is where it starts getting really, really weird. Like, does this, add 30% onto the payback structure for like, you know, the, the idea when economists are saying there's no, right. like, well, how, do, how does it work out, right? Like when you're looking at the additional costs, when you figure in like interests and borrowing costs and whatnot, like what does this extend, what does this add on to the payback period for the city? And yes. that's the part that gets concerning. Like in my mind, baseball as an institution doesn't have another 50 years, right? Like it's dead as a sport already based on uh, little league participations and whatnot. Mm -hmm. you know, a full generation comes up. You're not going to have enough people playing high school, like today playing little league to fill out high school baseball teams. That's just like a reality of, of math. And yeah, it's getting terrifying. You know, Brendan, did you know that even though the current mayor of Worcester is not a roller state tycoon, we once had a mayor who was a roller state tycoon? I did not know that. I want to tell you this. This is from Happiness Pony this month. It's called Samuel Winslow, Mayor Industrialist. In the late 1880s, the mayor of Worcester was also a skate tycoon. Samuel Winslow started his eponymous company with his brother Seth in 1857. In their first year, they made 25 pairs of skates and only sold 19. Seth passed away in 1871, but Sam continued to build the business into the largest skate manufacturer in the country. By 1889, the Samuel Winslow Skate Manufacturing Company produced over a quarter of a million skates a year and employed 200 people. 40 styles of ice skates and 15 styles of roller skates were made in its factory on Mulberry Street. And here's a great ad... World world girdlers, wherever <laughs> skates are used, Winslow skates are famous. And it has people from around the world in winter clothing and the flags of many nations. But they're all using skates made in Worcester, Massachusetts. All roads lead to Worcester, man. Uh, man, a different year, a different time. You big skater? No. You don't like skating? No, I mean, I, you know. I had one experience when I was a kid ice skating at a, an indoor uh, rink where, like, it was new on skates, wobbly and whatnot, trying to get my feet under me. And uh, never forget, it was this young girl. I was probably like 10, 7, 10, somewhere in that range, like maybe single digits. But um, I just remember like looking to my left and seeing this really young girl, like like yard sale. And her hands went out like this. And as soon as her hands went out to the sides, like an adult in hockey skates came like flying by, went right over her hand. And that the, the image that's burned in my head is this cute little white. Wait, mate. here's my look again. <laughs> This cute little white mitten on her right hand, just like slowly turning red. And just looking at this and like, she was like in such horror. There was a kind of sh like, I don't know if her fingers were cut. Like, who knows? Like, I don't know what a skate does. What to happened hand. to that girl? I have no idea. I just beelined right off the ice said, nope, I'm done with this. And I've, I've never, I think I've been on skates exactly once since, since then. I've got 
just seems like one of those ridiculous sports that, you know, you're deriving pleasure from this. If you're not wearing gauntlets and a suit of armor, you're just asking for trouble. Man, well, you know, Allie Reed has another another article in this Happiness Pony, which is all about, it's called Everyday Traction. It's about being a year-round walker in Worcester and how do you deal with the ice? And the answer is, I think, that you just got to deal with the skates. ice. You got to change your expectations. The Winslow the Skates the Company has, the, has a solution for you. <sighs> yeah, I mean, it, reading this article, actually, I thought about our dream of a uh, 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 Tesla snow Roomba, mm-hmm. which is probably the only thing that's going to change the solution again, which is that if you have like a nice deal that you can just program to like drive up and down the sidewalks of Worcester and the roads of Worcester and just grind that snow away and yeah. grind that ice away. Superheated. It's a combination of the Roomba and the uh, the boring company flamethrower from that Tesla put out to raise there money. You there you go. But we don't have that Tesla... Does not exist right now, that Tesla snow Roomba. We need a mayor uh, to corner the, the local market on Tesla Roombas to clear ice. Do we have a lot of robotics. We, I know we have some robotics going on in Worcester, but not, not a High ton, school level. Right? Yeah, there was actually the... the yeah, our, but I mean, as far as like, I mean, as far as like big time manufacturing, whatever's... Well, I don't know. Like, well, the, the, the high school team was just out at uh, the state house this week uh, doing a demonstration of their robots for... Uh, for oh, nice work, guys. Legislators. Well, you know, I want to actually come, I want to, I want to talk about something real quick as like a public service announcement. So there's an article this week in the telegram from Nick Katsopoulos, recycling guide to be mailed. Um, and he's quoting Paul J. Muzi, commissioner of public works and parks from a, you know, a paper that I guess he wrote last year, a report he put in last year. And, um, I, you know, as much as I've never heard of anybody in the city of Worcester, uh, complain that they didn't have better access to city hall. I've never really talked to anybody in the city of Worcester who, upon reflection, was actually doing recycling mm-hmm. to acceptable standards. Like, I've talked to many a person in the city of Worcester, many institutions in the city of Worcester, where they're like, well, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to wash out my recycling bins. And this is where I'm always like, you got to stop right there and realize if you have to wash out your recycling bins, then your recycling is contaminated and odds are good. It's not it's, being recycled. It's not being recycled. <laughs> it's just being thrown away. Like, the whole... Like, right. Like that should be part of your standard for your recycling is like the bin will never be washed. Right. But he says here, as a result of China and various other countries in enacting strict standards to lower contamination rates to almost 0% for recyclables that are imported as feedstock for manufacturing, the value of recycling commodities throughout the world has drastically declined. Of course, the cost to process recyclables is now even higher than the cost to dispose of trash. The need to collect only those items that can be recycled is crucial in the effort to reduce our contamination rate. And I guess I never thought about it in those terms, even though I should probably read this report last year when he wrote it. Um, you know, is which meaning that like whenever you take that greasy pizza box mm-hmm. with like half a piece of pizza still in it and you throw that in your recycling, like that goes through the recycling process and then it's moved, it's diverted into the trash anyway, Right. but it just costs the city more money because it was recycled. This is one of those things that I feel like rather than being just thrown right in the trash. I, and I feel like we've had this conversation on the show a year ago when, or just over a year ago when China started making these big changes to what they were willing to import into the country. This is one of those like crazy conversations that you almost have to avoid if you want to have be keep sane uh, in terms of general mental health. Because it's really hard for people who are um, devotees to recycling, it's really hard to have conversations with them that like our recycling doesn't work probably the way that you think it does. So for the last 20 years, uh, most of our recycling gets bundled up by local local collection uh, companies and then it gets shipped to China. And then China will take it and oftentimes by hand sort through the stuff that they can work with and recycle, they keep, 
The rest they just dispose of, oftentimes in the ocean. Yes, infamously like, creating the Great Pacific garbage. Well, and this is the thing. Like when you point out, to, like when somebody is, is is saying, "Oh my God, there's an, a plastic island floating out in the middle of the Pacific." Like if you look at that person and say, "Yeah, do you realize that's all your plastic that you recycled five years ago in China?" Like that's where it gets ugly because I feel as though Americans, especially Americans that are are genuinely trying to do the right thing when they realize that the right thing involves just burdening some other place with our refuse, uh, it gets ugly really fast. And I I have not found a successful way to have that conversation with anybody. Um, It's on the commercial side. It's tough too, because we use all compostables, uh, you know, at at, at the store. It's almost, I mean, there are places that will process them, but like when you, when you hear the word compostable, you feel like it's, I've actually had customers ask if they can take our compostables to bring them home to compost them. Oh, like, and you're like, well, do you have an industrial you know, comp- like five degree, whatever com- composting unit? unit? Yeah. And it's like, but that's part of the problem. Like a lot of those compostable plastics, even which, you know, they're rated as compostable. The number of cycles it takes to run through those 125 degree composters is more than one. And if it's more than one, it costs more to process than it's like is, is viable commercially for the composter so they just spit it out after one cycle so you end up with like half composted plastics they're still going to take billions of years and probably you know somehow be incorporated into the general evolution of trees before uh they actually break down it's a really messy system and they're outside of like a, a laboratory setting there is not easy solutions to it but i feel it's like dangerously one of those places where americans are really confident that by we put something in that little green bucket as long as it doesn't blow away in the wind, uh, you know, whatever you put in that bucket is going to successfully make its way back into the consumer cycle. And it's yeah. just nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, because I mean, it's like reduce, reuse, recycle, right? And nobody wants to reduce and reusing is frustrating. That's and filthy, Michael. Recycling is as easy as throwing it in the trash. And so like, this is a great way yeah. to be virtuous. But that's the problem is that that third R of reduce, reuse, recycle there's currently doesn't work. It's a broken system. And hopefully 10, 20 years from now, something changes and it works great. But yeah. right now, this as of 2020, it doesn't work. Well, it, it ends up working by virtue of like all these really cool bacteria that scientists keep inventing that like, like to eat plastic or whatnot. And then it gets released to the wild. They eat all of our clothes and eat everything. And we just go, we de-evolve back to uh, being lower primates. Oh, it's true. It's true. Well, Brendan... Uh, uh, a mess, Mike. It's a Brendan, mess. Brendan, Brent crude oil is $56 a barrel, up 1% on the week, down 12% on the year. Bitcoin is $10,400, up 10% on the week, up 186% on the year. Incredible. Brendan, what rough beast its hour come at last slouches towards Worcester to be born? I've been, yeah, I'm going to give you that look. <laughs> now, now you can give me the look. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I just feel like, oh, I just feel like this is all it ever is on this is like, that that yes poem, the second coming. That's all it ever is on this show. Is just can I? Like, uh, we, before we wrap up, I think we need to give one more uh, tip of the hat to our uh, our longtime foil on this show, Gary Rosen, who still seems to be moving forward with this idea that, damn it, if we're going to have a bus system, it might as well be free. And I think yeah. this is really cool that it's like one of these conversations that uh, is happening in the city that isn't like tiny houses that somehow exist like it was a bit 10 years ago it would have seemed impossible that like of all people gary rosen was going to say like hey let's just make the bus free it'll be awesome that like we're actually having that conversation a lot of people don't seem to even be aware that we're having that conversation so yeah kudos to gary for keeping that ball rolling you know brendan a a, a foolish consistency is a hobgoblin of little minds (laughs) and gary rosen is for what whatever you want to say about him is not a little mind Well, folks, that's all for this episode. We'll see you next time. And remember, you can bench more than you think you can.